have your Bibles, would you please meet me in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. And I want to put a tag on this message. The perils of a spiritually stiff heart. Say that with me. The perils of a spiritually stiff heart. The perils of a spiritually stiff heart. We're going to talk about the heart today. Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. In medicine, they call it stiff heart syndrome. Stiff heart syndrome. Uh, when one is afflicted with stiff heart syndrome, the heart muscle actually thickens due to high blood pressure. And at first, this thickening of the heart gets more blood flow to the body, but then because the heart pump thickens, it begins to stiffen. It can't rest or relax between uh, beats, and as a result, it leads to shortness of breath. It leads to fluid buildup in the body, the legs, the lungs. One cardiologist compares stiff heart syndrome to bodybuilders who lift weights and get strong. But unfortunately, if you were to ask them to touch their toes, they couldn't because they're, they're stiff. And when this happens to the heart, the pressure rises and serious health problems can follow. It can lead to congestive heart failure, stiff heart syndrome. Today I want us to consider the perils of spiritually stiff hearts. 
spiritually stiff hearts. 2,000 years ago, a micro house church gathering together in a mega capital city of the Roman Empire, quite possibly the city of Rome itself. And this little church was feeling the pressure of the world, the pressure of their culture, pressure that had involved persecution. And they were tempted to deconvert. They were tempted toward a heart reconstruction from grace to law, from Christ to Moses, from faith to works. Their hearts were stiffening. Four times in our text here today, we, we hear the word heart. Heart. How's your heart today? What's the state of your heart? What's the state of your heart in your relationships at home? In your marriage? With your children? With your parents? Your church family? What's the state of your heart towards some of your brothers and sisters in Christ here in this room? What's the state of your heart in relationship to God? How is your heart, and how can we prevent um, spiritual heart sclerosis? That's what I want us to consider today. I want us to, I want us to look at the problem of a spiritually stiff heart, and then I want us to see the prevention uh, that God presents. So this is a problem prevention passage of Scripture. Verses 7 through 11 speak about the problem, and verses 12 through 19 Get us to the prevention of this. Let's go there. Let's go there. The perils of a spiritually stiff heart, beginning with first the problem, the problem of a spiritually stiff heart. Now, verse 7 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. We said that was an important word. Therefore. What is it therefore? When we see the word therefore, we need to look back up to the context to see what was Disgust. And so, therefore, because Jesus is greater than angels, that's chapters one and two, therefore, because Jesus is greater than Moses, that's what we're talking about in chapter three, therefore, because Moses was servant and Jesus is the son, because Moses was a steward uh, and Jesus is the heir, because Moses was a prophet and leader in the house, yet Jesus' son over the house, the divine son over the house, because, because God the Father spoke in Hebrews 1, because God the Son has spoken in Hebrews 2. Therefore, here in Hebrews chapter 3, the Holy Spirit is speaking. Do you see the present tense there? The Holy Spirit says... Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, verses 7 through 11 are taken from Psalm 95, which was our call to worship that Leroy read moments ago. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 are taken from Psalm 95, 7 through 11. And Psalm 95 rehearses a scene in Exodus 17. Now, stay with me. See what's going on here. So in, in, it's the year 2022, 
and we're studying a sermon manuscript for a church around the year A.D. 68. And in this sermon, there's a quote from Psalm 95. The Psalm 95 was written now around 550 B.C. So 2022, A.D. 68, B.C. 550, concerning an event in Israel's history that happened in B.C. 1446-ish. 2022, 68, 550, 1446. The Holy Spirit is speaking in every one of those situations. The Holy Spirit has something to say. The word which the Spirit said in Exodus 17 is the word which the Spirit said in Psalm 95 which is the word that the Spirit is saying in A.D. 68 in the Hebrews chapter 3, and it's the word that the Holy Spirit is speaking today. The Holy Spirit is still speaking. If you want to hear the Holy Spirit speak, open your Bible. Because the Bible contains the vocal cords of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit speaks to your spirit, it's always in alignment with the word. So the preacher is saying the Holy Spirit speaking concerning this event. Let's go to let's go to Exodus 17. So after the supernatural plagues of Egypt, after Pharaoh's army was decimated, after the miracle of the Red Sea, after the blessing of manna that lasted all throughout the wilderness for 40 years, six days a week, Israel was fed bread from heaven. They were told on day six to gather enough for day seven. This went on for 40 years. After that, after this, Israel grew thirsty. And that wasn't a problem because thirst happens in the wilderness. What happened was a spiritually stiff heart. That's what happened. What happened was a heart of murmuring and complaining and accusing and testing and Israel cried out, Moses, why'd you bring us out here in the wilderness to kill us? You, you brought us out of Egypt to kill us, our children, our livestock. And Moses said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, Moses, I want you to go to the rock at Oreb, which was the place where Moses first saw God in the burning bush. I want you to pass by the people, an angry mob. Go right through this angry mob. Yeah, and then, and then strike the rock with the shepherd's staff and water shall come out. And it, it, it happened and they drank and, and here's the deal. Exodus 17, 7. And Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Massa and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So, so, so to commemorate the place where Israel was, was, had their thirst quenched, to commemorate the place, Moses didn't call it Sinai Springs. Okay? Didn't, didn't call it Oasis of Grace. No, 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 no. It was called Massa and Meribah. Quarrelsville and Grumblesburg. That's what it was called. So, so Exodus 17 
is a case study of a nation afflicted with spiritually stiff hearts. And the preacher to the Hebrews wants this house church to see themselves in Exodus 17 because he knew that this church felt like they were in the wilderness. And he wants this church to do some self-reflecting. What is the wilderness doing to my heart? How can we keep our hearts from stiffening when our circumstances are challenging? What's the state of your heart? Your heart. What do I mean by heart? Your heart. Your heart is the answer to the question, why do people do what it is they do? Why did he say that? Why does she do that? What's that about? The answer has to do with the heart. Your, your heart is why you do what you do. Your heart is the fountainhead of your words and your behavior. Jesus said every human heart flows either into good or into evil. Luke 6, 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So your heart is the essential part of who you are. It's the essential core of you. And and this world, our world, you know, puts tremendous pressure on curb appeal. The outer person, but Jesus says the true person is the person within. When you're talking about getting to know someone, you're not talking about that you have a deeper knowledge of their ears or their nose or their eyebrows. You're not. You're referring to the inner person. You're talking about the heart, the heart. And and if you go back to Luke 6.45, you see that the heart has quite a capacity it, ha- it has the capacity to hold this, this orchard, this harvest, this, this agricultural estate of the Holy Spirit's fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The heart, your heart has that capacity, and your heart also has the capacity to be a, a toxic waste dump of evil. And, and Jesus says that the heart cannot be defiled from without, but from within. The heart's a battlefield. Desires compete with other desires. And one desire will rule. Because although your heart has the capacity for many contestants, your heart has only one Throne room seat. You can only choose one king. And since your heart is the essential you, any change has to target the heart. And and human behavioral change doesn't happen from the outside in. It starts in the heart. And so the Hebrew preacher wants this church to see themselves In the story of Israel, why did Israel quarrel and complain? Because their hearts were full of unbelief. And unbelief will stiffen the heart, which leads to contempt, which leads to quarreling, which leads to grumbling, which leads to sinful disobedience, which leads to the testing of God. Stiff hearts test 
God. Verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. For 40 years, they saw God at work every day. And yet, they just tested God, tested him. What do I mean by that? Well, to test God means to issue an ultimatum, an ultimatum whereby we judge God's presence based on criteria of our choosing. To test God is to evaluate him based on our specified criteria prior to issuing a verdict about him. To test God is, uh, you know, in line with a lot of the entertainment shows that we see where we, you know, you have the judges sitting in the panel and then the contestant is on stage performing and afterwards there's a judgment, right? There's an evaluation, there's a critique. And so in that scenario, we take the seat and God takes the stage doing his performance and then we judge that. Testing God is demanding that he jump through our hoops and make himself answerable and accountable to us. Testing God takes his sovereignty as our own. And for four decades, Israel, having seen God's supernatural activity, yet, 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 in Exodus 17, 7, is the Lord among us or not? God, what have you done for me lately? Uh, One scholar mused, maybe Israel thought that they could just get away with that. Because, you know, they'd seen God's dealings with Pharaoh and how it took 10 plagues to break a powerful national ruler. And and, and, we're called to be his selected nation, his elect people. Maybe they thought, well, how far can we cross the line before we're caught? You hear, you hear the presumption in testing God, making him jump through our hoops? Now, now listen, I want to be clear here this morning. A lamenting heart, a wounded heart, an aching heart, a broken heart, a tearful heart, a grieving heart, a hurt heart, a suffering heart is not by default a stiff heart. Okay, please, please know this. A stiff heart is characterized by a demanding, testing, skeptical spirit. A a, a stiff heart is characterized by unbelief. A stiff heart decrees, God, I don't trust you. I just don't trust you. And finally, God said, enough. They always go astray. They they have not known my ways. And so, sadly, the people that were rescued out of Egypt who were meant to live in the land of promise, in fact, perished in the wilderness because of unbelief. And, and, And it was their children, it was their children who finally entered the land of promise. Our children are watching our hearts. Our grandchildren are watching our hearts. They're watching and learning from from our hearts. I I think the most sobering portrait of stiff heart syndrome is in Deuteronomy 29, 18 to 20. Deuteronomy 29, 18 to 20. 
Though the parents have died off, and now the children are about ready to enter the promised land. And in Moses' word to the children, beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root-bearing, poisonous, and bitter fruit, one who, get this, oh, beware, one who when he hears the words of this sworn covenant blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in stubbornness of heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. That's strong words. And yet, well, what else do you expect God to say? What, what, I mean, what do we expect when someone says, I'll be safe even though I walk in stubbornness in my heart? I mean, and the preacher to the Hebrews wants that little house church to see themselves in Exodus 17. Some of the congregation in pagan Rome are facing the wilderness of thirst, the wilderness of persecution, the wilderness of suffering, the wilderness of loneliness. And in this wilderness, there is the temptation to test God. Is the Lord among us or not? And this, this unbelief can lead to a stiff heart, which leads to more unbelief, which leads to more stiffness. It's a vicious cycle. Church family, I want us to see ourselves in this story too. You owe it to yourself to hold what the Holy Spirit is saying up to your face as a mirror in order to see that the greatest danger facing us is not continued hostility from the world. It's not the wilderness of disease. It's not the wilderness of suffering. It's not the wilderness of post-COVID languishing. It's not the wilderness of unfulfilled dreams. The greatest danger is not the wilderness out there, but the stiffness in here. In our hearts, hearts that drift from trusting God to testing God. Hearts that drift from Psalm 95.1, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, to Exodus 17.7, is the Lord among us or not? The worst thing that can happen to you is not the withering of your body, but the stiffening of your heart. Which is why verse 13 says, let none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, so, so witnessing the supernatural acts of God doesn't guarantee saving faith. And a good start does not guarantee a good finish. Some start their Christian life with excitement and optimism, but the real test is whether we demonstrate perseverance in the wilderness. Verse 14, we have come, past tense. Do you see that? Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. So perseverance is evidence of a trusting heart from the very start. And you may be wondering, yeah, but I mean, pastor, it's the wilderness. Do you know what you're asking? I mean, how, 
How can I keep my heart from stiffening in the harsh, dry wilderness? How? Oh. Well, that's where we get to the prevention. You see it there? It's in the text. It's right there. Hebrews 13, 3. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, so the, the prevention is by means of daily exhortation. Our gathering, this gathering, weekly and with one another during the week, softens our hearts. Frequent contact with brothers and sisters in Christ keeps our hearts soft and concentrated on As long as it is called today, as long as it is called today, today, if you hear his voice, today is the era of opportunity to feed a heart of trust. Today is the era of opportunity to feed a heart of trust. And today is our opportunity to exhort and encourage, to exhort and encourage, to encourage it comes from a word which means to be invited, to come alongside, and be present in order to help. It means to urge strongly. It means to appeal to. It means to fervently encourage or to make a strong request. It means to instill into someone courage and comfort and cheer. I'm, I'm thinking of the late uh, Larry Crabb who gave us a book called Encouragement. I recommend that book. He wrote, encouragement is the kind of expression that helps someone want to be a better Christian even when life is rough. So, so by the grace of God, I can have an effect on your life and you can have an effect on my life. So encouragement is the careful selection of words intended to influence another person to godliness. And so verbal encouragement includes the idea of one person joining someone else on a journey and speaking words of courage that encourage a traveler to keep pressing on in spite of obstacles and fatigue. And, and so encouragement can be a broad range. So you know the Scoville scale of peppers, right? So, so encouragement can, can, can taste like a, a, a sweet banana pepper, mild. Or a chocolate habanero. It can be mild. I'm, I'm with you. I'm praying for you. How can I serve you? I missed you at church. Or it can have some heat to it. Don't go there. No, I'm serious. Don't go there. Don't, don't, don't. You're testing God. So, so encouragement happens when a heart motivated by love speaks grace into a heart flooded with fears. Fears are like cancer cells. They intensify, they multiply. You know, how can we, can I handle life? Does anybody really care? What do I do? What would I do if? Will I make enough money? How will my kids turn out? Will I pass this test? Am I appreciated? Am I worthwhile at all? You know, Probably in a church like ours when we're out visiting and talking in the foyer and having coffee, nobody looks afraid. But all of us have fears. All of us. Hebrews 2.15 talks about the fear of death. 
who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know, all of us face this prospect, and none of us knows by experience what's on the other side of the grave. We walk by faith, not by sight. There's uncertainty. There's therefore fear. So so what happens when Christians who all are afraid often get together? Well, they kind of layer up to protect themselves from each other. We just kind of meet each other on the surface. And the Hebrew preacher is saying, hey, let's go deeper. Let's encourage one another. Let's speak well-chosen words of love to one another. Let's, Let's notice one another's fears and then love them. Let's tell one another what God says is true about all of us. Let's demonstrate Christ to one another. Let's be safe to one another. Verse 13 reminds us that we're never permitted to disregard the effect our words have on others. So my words need to be suited to others' needs. So so listen, encouragement is not a technique to master as much as it is a sensitivity to people and a confidence in God that needs to be nourished and demonstrated. And we know that encouragement is working when we accept one another as God in Christ has accepted us. I will give you some strategies or tactics here before I sit down. First, first be slow to speak. Proverbs 18, 13 says to answer before listening, that's folly and shame. Be slow to speak so that you can concentrate on what others are saying. Number two, be sensitive in your speech. That means asking questions like what words will be most effective in touching this person? What does this situation ask of me to help this person grow in Christ in their wilderness? Principle number three is be gentle in your speech. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Gentle, Gentle words are words that are seasoned with grace, and grace is what strengthens the heart. Grace strengthens the heart. Hebrews 13.9, Hebrews 13.9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. What I'm trying to say is that security in Christ is a group project. We need one another. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Instead, consider Jesus. Consid- consider Jesus because he's considering you. His eyes are fixed on you. Consider Jesus who says, behold, I'm making all things new. Consider Jesus because he's saying, I want you where I am. Yes, yes, there's an ongoing battle with sin and the worries of life and the temptations of unbelief that can lead to a spiritually stiff heart. And, and, and there's Jesus. There's Jesus lifted high, majesty above all. Look to Jesus, see Jesus, pray to Jesus, read about Jesus, love Jesus. You see, he himself suffered when tempted and tested so he can help those of us. He can help our congregation when we are tempted and tested. And he's not ashamed to call us his family. He's not. So you focus on today, 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 just today. You only have today anyway. Give us this day 
our daily bread. And tonight we'll sleep under his sovereign care. And tomorrow, tomorrow under his sovereign care will take care of itself. Amen. Heavenly Father.